Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Jane Stansel. This is the New Books Network, the African American Studies Channel. And today I have the pleasure of talking with Carrie Pemblot. She's a professor at the University of Manchester in the UK. She's a lecturer in American history. And we're going to be talking about her book, Faith and Black Power, Religion, Race, and Resistance in Cairo, Illinois. And it's published by the University Press of Kentucky. I think you're going to enjoy this interview. This is a book that's, you know, about black power. You know, during a specific time period, you're talking about the 60s and the 70s um, in a small city, a small town in Illinois. But really, this is applicable for anywhere. And for today's freedom struggles, for those who are, you know, are interested in resisting or maybe feel like they're struggling for their rights now, you can really draw some inspiration um, from what Carrie wrote about in this book. And really during this interview, and she talks about the um details and how she went through and did her her interviews and the length of time and and, you know it's really she's really passionate about her work and I think that's going to come through so without further ado I'm going to go here and let Carrie speak for herself Carrie Pimblot University of Manchester and her book Faith in Black Power Religion Race and Resistance in Cairo Illinois on the African American Studies channel of the New Books Network here we go Hello and welcome to the New Books Network, the African American Studies Channel. I'm your host, James Stansel, and I have the pleasure of being here today with Carrie Pimblot, and we're going to be talking about her book, Faith in Black Power, Religion, Race, and Resistance in Cairo, Illinois. This book is published by the University Press of Kentucky, and Carrie Pimblot is a lecturer in American history across the pond, as they say at the University of Manchester. Carrie, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, James. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. So so good to talk with you, and thank you for taking some time to uh, talk with me. I know the time is a little bit different over there, but when I saw your, your book and I saw John Lewis on the cover, and you know, I was like, okay, religion, race, and resistance. John Lewis, I'm sold. <laughs> i got to talk to Carrie about this book. But, Carrie, before we kind of get into the detail, the details on this book, you know, I, my listeners often like to hear about the people who write these books, their backgrounds, their motivations, uh, people who are influential in their lives and such. Do you mind sharing some information with us about your past or your background? Absolutely. Um, so I'm originally, you can tell from the accent, I'm from England, um, but I've lived in the United States uh, for the past 15 years. I just uh, returned to the UK after a long time living okay. in Illinois. Um, and I also lived in Wyoming for four years in Ooh. Laramie, Wyoming, okay. where I worked as a black studies scholar out there at the University of Wyoming. So um, wow. I've been out there for a long time. Uh, I was I did my degree, uh, my Ph.D. at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Okay. Um, and I'd say, you know, I'm a scholar of social movements. I write about black social movements. And I really got a second education living in the United States mm-hmm. on uh, organizing on the ground in black communities right. in Illinois. Um, so my book is about um, one community in Illinois, mm-hmm. but I actually spent a lot of time living in Illinois, uh, working with community organizations there in Champaign-Urbana while I was at graduate school. Right. So I 
I'd say, uh, you know, living in the United States, uh, working on these questions related to how to build racial justice movements um, uh, in the Midwest uh, before the Black Lives Matter movement. That was kind of where I got my feet wet uh, and trained under some great people at the University of Illinois in the Black Studies program there in the history department. Um, so I've just recently returned to the UK to take a job here in Manchester right as Trump was getting elected um, and uh, I don't know, it's, it's an interesting time to be doing black history. And, and it's a very discombobulating experience to be living here in the UK right now, working on these questions and, and not to be connected with the people that I've spent a lot of time with out there in the US um, organizing around, mm -hmm. you know, questions like immigration rights and uh, around Black Lives Matter questions. Right, and right. so it's good to be talking to you, I guess, and to be reconnecting <laughs> with folks in the US. Absolutely. And, you know, your voice will be heard all across the United States and the world on the African-American Studies channel of the New Books Network. And again, we're here with Dr. Carrie Pimblot. She is a historian of, of American history at the University of Manchester, and her book, published by University Press of Kentucky, Faith in Black Power, Religion, Race, and Resistance in Cairo, Illinois. And That's right. <laughs> because Sometimes people pronounce that wrong. You know, people pronounce it Cairo, uh, right. like the Egyptian version. But yeah, right. it's Cairo, uh, the only spot where people pronounce it that way, Southern Illinois. All right. Well, so, so if you're listening out there in Southern Illinois, uh, Carrie Pimblot did not forget you. She got it correct. And she corrected me on it before we got online because I was saying Cairo as well. Um, so she definitely hasn't forgotten you. And, you know, she wrote a great book here about about your struggle there in that city. Um, and I, you know, let's just kind of talk about the cover just briefly, too, uh, Carrie, because I love sure. this cover. You know, you you know, you've got your purple, you got your gold and you've got John Lewis, a legendary civil rights leader on the far left. And there, you know, um, looks like they're in prayer. And, I, and I'm kind of describing it for the folk because it's a podcast. They can't see it. <laughs> But if you go to our blog page on New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel, you can see it. You can also click through and purchase the book there. Um, you can also go to the website, um, the, you know, the University Press of Kentucky or to uh, Carrie's page. You know, you can do all those things visually. But I'm just kind of describing it, you know, just online, uh, you, know, uh, you know, for the people who are, are listening. But John Lewis, they're, they're, they're in prayer. It looks like they're on a, on a, on a street maybe, uh, uh, on a block. Can you just kind of tell us about the background and how it relates to the book? Yeah, there's actually a really interesting story about this photograph. Okay. It's a very famous photograph if you're familiar with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee or right. SNCC. SNCC. Right. So this photograph was used by SNCC uh, during the early 1960s to try to attract people to join the organization and to publicize the organization's work primarily across the U.S. South, because, you okay. know, SNCC in that period, the early 1960s, is mostly known for its work uh, performing sit-ins uh, in southern sure, cities. Sure. Um, and for also its work in the voter registration programs uh, in Mississippi. So what's really interesting about this photo is when they when they put it out there and they circulate it, uh, they don't tell you that this photo was actually taken in Cairo, Illinois, a ah. northern state. Um, and so they they have a little um, uh, a kind of slogan that's posted on it that says, come build a new world together. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, and that's the slogan for SNCC, you know. So they circulate this image um, and it suggests you when you first look at it that this is John Lewis perhaps organizing in a southern city. Mm. It's suggestive of the religious dynamics of mm. the movement in the south. Uh, but actually this photo was taken in 1962 in Cairo, Illinois. Um, and it's at a desegregation protest okay. trying to integrate swimming pools in Cairo. Mm. So straight off the bat, there's a bit of a contradiction there in terms of how we think about civil rights and black power, which sure. is that when we think about SNCC and we think about civil rights struggles, we often think about them as being Southern struggles mm -hmm. and the integration of the Jim Crow South. But actually, Illinois had rigid segregation. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, I don't just mean that also it had residential segregation or segregation in schooling based on mm -hmm. uh, residents. It had rigid uh, segregation practices that were by racial assignment in wow. swimming pools, in movie theaters, um, and also in schools by racial assignment policy. Okay. And so this struggle here in 62 is specifically targeted at public accommodations in Cairo. Mm -hmm. And one of the central characters in my book, his name's Charles Cohen. Charles um, Cohen, still, okay. Still alive today, he's the leader of the Black Power Movement in Cairo and has been very involved in Illinois struggles for black freedom okay. over the course of the late 20th century. Mm -hmm. uh, he got his feet wet in this movement here in Cairo mm -hmm. in the 1960s. And as a young boy in Cairo, at only 15 years old, 16 years old, he mm -hmm. organized under John Lewis, and John Lewis uh, was his mentor at that time. So uh, John Lewis was there in Cairo for a few weeks in the summer of 1962 and made a real difference and mentored a generation of young people that went on to build a black power movement in Cairo, which is what my book's about. Absolutely. So I guess we should, should send this book to our president who, who didn't think, <laughs> what is he? He said John he was all talk and no action. John yeah. Lewis. John, Locke, John Lewis is all talk and no action, but here he is on the cover of of your book, Carrie, back in uh, 1962. Uh, well, we'll just leave that. We'll leave it for the audience to decide. <laughs> speaks for itself. I think the cover speaks for itself. Yeah. All right. And so we're talking about faith and black power, religion, race, and resistance in Cairo, Illinois. And I'm here on the Black Studies channel, the African American Studies channel of the New Books Network with author Carrie Pimblot, a UK author. So she did spend a decade, decade, decade and a half here in the United States, right? PhD, That's right. PhD from the University of Illinois, but she is now a lecturer in American history at the University of Manchester. And I probably shouldn't ask this, but I, but I have to ask. It's sort of like here in the United States, we say Krispy Kreme donuts or Dunkin' <laughs> Donuts. So I have to ask you, Manchester City or Manchester United? No doubt Manchester United. Oh, and this okay. is a coincidence. I'm a longtime Man United fan, and then I, <laughs> I managed to move back to Manchester. So, yeah, that was uh, fortuitous. All right, so it worked <laughs> out. And some people will know what we're talking about, but most probably will not. We're talking about football, and I don't mean American style. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for indulging me there. Uh, I'm a Man United fan as well. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, kindred spirits, yeah. yeah absolutely. Absolutely. And so, uh, Carrie, let's just kind of get to maybe get into your book a little bit. And, you know, uh, we want we want the listeners to go out and buy it. But, you know, we can also, you know, maybe share some ideas, some of your key points and things in, you know, in, in the book that you like to share. 
Of course. So, um, you know, when I first began working on this project, uh-huh. uh, you know, everybody, when you're a writer, you make a choice, right, about what you're going to devote a decade of your life to. <laughs> right. And the project has got to be interesting enough, you know, and I was looking for a, a local movement that could tell a story um, that would maybe be applicable in the present. So mm-hmm. I think there's something I want to say about that but also that had been maybe neglected or obscured in some way mm-hmm. um, that people had not focused on. And, um, and so this movement, when I talked to people who were involved in the Black Power movement, people from that generation, this movement, the Cairo Black Power movement, continually came up in their conversations wow. with me. Um, Cairo after 1970 uh, is really the central kind of struggle in mm-hmm. the United States black power on the ground. Um, after 1970, most of the movements kind of shift. Uh, and this is Peniel Joseph's work is really good mm-hmm. on this. It mm-hmm. talks about mm-hmm. the second wave of black power, where most black power activists who are, are very militant are being forced into exile. They've been incarcerated. Right. Their organizations are being harassed by federal agencies. Quintel Pro, right. Exactly. So, so there's a change in the movement where increasingly struggles move to the ballot box or they move into economic development initiatives, to partnerships with the state, into black capitalism, or the radical wing is cut off. Mm-hmm. And so the Cairo movement after 1970 is a little anomalous because other than Newark, it's really one of the only struggles where people sustain a black power movement that mass mobilizes large numbers of people within a community to engage in boycotts, uh, you know, uh, direct action initiatives, and uh, major institutional development projects at the local level. Okay. Um, so when I talked to activists, they were like, somebody needs to write a book on Cairo because Cairo is a town that's been neglected uh, in many ways. Mm-hmm. It's been neglected by scholars, but it's been neglected by the government, you know, and mm-hmm. the, the town itself is a town that struggles deeply with financial problems. Um, and the black community there, its story's not been told um, and resources have not been reallocated to that community either. Right. So I wanted to tell its story for some of those reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm from a community myself that struggled from deindustrialization, um, mm. you know, in, in the UK from Stoke-on-Trent. Um, and so part of this story for me when I visited Cairo was that it, it was a town that reminded me a lot of where I came from. Okay. Um, you know, that there are communities where you could seem like uh, there really is no potential for building a social movement, that the resources necessary to build movements are absent, um, and that they are places that often get represented as having no agency. Mm. And so I wanted to tell a story uh, that really challenged that narrative. And in Cairo, that's certainly the case. Mm. Um, and so this is to bring the people of Cairo's story to life, you know, the, the fact that they engage one of the most potent black power struggles um, of the period, um, and it fundamentally transformed the way of life for black and white people living in Cairo um, in ways that have been uh, obscured by the historical records wow. uh, and obscured by people living in the town to this day, uh, you know, in terms of how their story is told. Um, so that was the first piece. It was that Cairo was an overlooked site. Mm-hmm. But then... You know, when I went down there and I started speaking to people and performing research, something else came out of this story that had significance. Okay. Which was that the Black Power movement in Cairo is, it was not a movement that looked like other Black Power struggles. There's this notion of Black Power that we have, right, which is, you know, the Black Power is primarily a kind of urban, um, male, young, working class struggle, Right. Right. Um, and often it's a very masculinized image of black power mm-hmm. um, with youth being at the center. And this movement did not look like that. Okay. It was a movement that was um, run uh, by a very diverse group of black people. 
they were from different social classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were of different generations. There was men and women. Okay. Um, but the thing that unified them was also a contradictory thing for black power, which was uh, Christianity, their belief uh, and commitment right. to a, almost a Southern-like Christian tradition mm-hmm. and what we see in typical civil rights struggles. Um, and the movement itself was built around the black church, around the black churches in Cairo um, and the theological tradition that was articulated there. So very much the images of the black power movement in Cairo could pass again as civil rights images. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're images of people holding revival like church services. Okay. You know, it's ministers playing a leading role. Re- Charles Cohen becomes Reverend Charles Cohen mm-hmm. um, and he teaches a black theology. Um, before black theology becomes an academic discourse, right? Right, right, right. On, um, and then also black women who are lay leaders in the church um, and are deaconesses and play other significant roles within the church become leaders within this mm-hmm. struggle as well. Um, women of all generations. Some of the characters in my book are, um, are actually many black elders um, mm. who play a considerable role within the black power struggle, really rubs uneasily against what we think of as black power. Okay. Um, so the book really began to explore then the role of religion and black church institutions in the black power movement. And it tells a set of stories about that through talking about the characters that I came across um, in studying the movement. Okay. I'd say the big arguments that it makes is number one, that the black church was actually in some places very central to black power struggles. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, secondly, it also argues that black people in black power struggles like Cairo were formative to the development of black liberation theology. Mm. What we think of as an academic discourse, actually, black liberation theology was engaged in by working class black people in Cairo. Mm. They read the latest scholarship by people like James Cone. Mm. They were me with Albert Clegg, who was coming into Cairo from Detroit, Mm. from his Church of the Black Madonna um, and speaking at their services And then they also met, and this is critical, with black church executives who were leading major black church organizations like the National Committee of Black Churchmen, who came and met in Cairo for their their national meeting um, in the 1970s. They come to Cairo and they decide that they're going to fund this movement and they're going to use their power within national denominations to leverage funds for the black power movement in Cairo. Um, through the process of looking at this, I discovered this was actually a national story mm. because predominantly white denominations, black leaders within them were responsible for channeling extensive financial resources to black power struggles, to Chicano rights movement, okay. to the American Indian movement. Okay. They channeled millions of dollars during wow. the 1970s to these organizations all over the country. So a shout out to one group particularly mm-hmm. is the Interreligious Foundation for Community Organizations, or okay. what we know as ITCO. They're having their 50th anniversary this year. Wow. Uh, okay. And they're a fantastic organization that was created in 1967, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were responsible for channeling more money than almost any of these other religious organizations wow. to black power struggles all over the United States, to Chicano rights movement struggles. So what I uncovered in the process of doing this research was just how much funding was allocated for community development, economic development, and actual black power organizing on the ground in communities Mm -hmm. in the United States. So part of the story is also about that, that the church was not just involved in providing people a meeting space and providing people, you know, kind of 
emotional resources to sustain a struggle, but also the black church was responsible for leveraging the very critical financial resources necessary to build black power projects. Wow. And black power, it costs more money than civil rights, right? Civil rights required legal defense funding because people were trying to integrate public accommodations mm-hmm. or you know, they were getting arrested and so they needed bail bonds. Sure, right, right, right. But black power is a different story, right? Black power is also interested in building wholesale new institutions. Right. So in Cairo, this money that's given by predominantly white denominations because of black clergy within them uh, is utilized to build things uh, like daycare facilities, shopping centers, prefabricated housing projects. And so Cairo engages in significant economic development not as a result of its white city council, which discriminates strongly against blacks in this period, mm-hmm. but because of black people themselves who are organizing through their mm-hmm. major black power organization called the United Front. Wow. So it's a fascinating story. And in that respect, I think there is some really important lessons to be learned from it. But I'd say the lesson that I came away with also was the fact that once this funding was removed, okay. which it very rapidly was during mm-hmm. the mid 1970s, okay it became a leading cause for the movement's demise. So there was initially a principal commitment by predominantly white churches Mm -hmm. to afford funding to these struggles because of pressure that had been put on them uh, by uh, black power activists and by black clergy. But during the mid-1970s, most of these organizations, and IFCO is a really notable exception, uh, began to decline. They Mm -hmm. either had their funding suddenly cut, their agencies closed down, um, and funding for black power in Cairo and communities across the United States suddenly evaporated. Oh. Um, and so this is part of the decline of black power, too, I think that hasn't been told, which is that black power wasn't only crushed by state repression. That's certainly part of the story. Sure. and It's certainly part of Cairo's story. Um, but also there was a lack of principled allyship that mm. we see from predominantly white denominations. We have this incredible story of predominantly white denominations taking steps that I don't know we see in the present in terms of support for um, social movement engagement. But at the same time, we see a declension of that funding that really ties people uh, in the black power movement to the interests of a kind of predominantly white uh, constituency Mm -hmm. whose own concerns about funding for black power are, are raised. Right. So, so that's also the book kind of closes on a discussion of that, of, of the costs of allyship um, with predominantly white institutions like mm-hmm. the church. So that's the central focus of the book. It's, uh, uh, I would say for lessons for the present for me, you know, that I've been as I've talked about the book recently since mm-hmm. it came out in January. The lessons that I've been wrestling with have been in relation to the Trump administration a little. Okay. Um, okay. Just like one of the perils I see in the book is that Cairo is one of the most rigidly segregated and racially hostile communities outside of the deep south that I've looked at. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a community in which, to give you an example of this, um, political opportunities are extremely narrow there because black folks were um, excluded from the political system Mm -hmm. um, through a series of kind of voter reforms that meant that black folks' political power was diluted to the point Mm -hmm. of having no impact. So there was no black elected officials in Cairo for 60 years uh, because these reforms. Yeah, even though black folks in Cairo constitute about 30 to 40 percent of the population in the time that I study, Mm -hmm. they didn't get a single black office member into office. Um, So there's a a political opportunity that is narrow uh, for them. They cannot use traditional means to affect change. 
Um, and the people that are in office are overt white supremacists. Uh, they're people that subscribe to a very clear and open commitment to segregation and to protecting it in every area of life. They're not disguising that or putting it into language that is softer. They're quite open about their commitment to uh, racial segregation. And then in addition, 2,000 people in Cairo, a town that at this point only had about 15,000 people living okay. in it. 2,000 people uh, joined the White Citizens Council and became oh. active members of the White Citizens Council, in addition to having a history of clan activity in the region. So, so this town is, you know, a place where white supremacists were active, open, participating in civil mm -hmm. life, controlling the arm of mm -hmm. the state. And black folks were, in addition to being not given access to the political system, were also very impoverished because of the collapse of the city economically. Mm -hmm. um, they were kept at the bottom rung of the economic ladder. So someone like Charles Cohen, who is the center of this story, you know, grows up in public housing, um, has very few economic opportunities in Cairo. He works picking cotton in the summer times mm -hmm. outside of Cairo uh, to help sustain his family. Um, you know, and so we're talking about his story being pretty typical for most black people that lived in Cairo during that period, with the right. exception of a few black school teachers and a few black ministers that's you know the case so in that sense they had none of the resources um, that you would think would be necessary to build an effective movement in that town they had a very narrow structure of political opportunities limited resources and therefore you think the opportunity to struggle and fight back would be limited mm -hmm. and yet they mount this incredible movement for about two decades in Cairo um, and it really is a lesson to me on the ability of human beings to exert their agency. And so I think we can in a Trump moment. It tells me that, that, yeah. that even in the most limited political opportunities, maybe we can affect change. And, you know, it's inspirational, like you said, you know, for, for people who want to relate the struggle in Cairo to things that are going on in today's world. I mean, they can learn from the past, which is, you know, what, you know, historians are doing, you know, sharing past information and, and making it where people can apply it and maybe learn from those past movements and struggles. And so we're here today with Carrie Pimblot. She's a professor at the University of Manchester, a fan of Manchester United. <laughs> we discussed that. She's a lecturer, <laughs> a lecturer in American history. And her book we're talking about today, published by University Press of Kentucky, is Faith in Black Power, Religion, Race, and Resistance in Cairo, Illinois. And we're here on the New Books Network, the African-American Studies Channel. And thank you so much, Carrie, for sharing. You know, and I can tell that you're passionate about your research, which is outstanding. And it, and it comes through in your, your writings. Very well written, very well done, great pictures in there. And we talked earlier, you know, about the cover. And, you know, you, you mentioned that it was a, a famous SNCC advertisement or, you know, rec recruitment thing. And, but it actually took place in, in Cairo. Which, That's you know, right. You know, I think about some of the uh, other, uh, you know, uh, historical kind of civil rights. I think there's a, there's a famous uh, court case about the a Klan movement, and um, it was, I think it was like a Klan protest, and it was like a freedom of uh, assembly. I can't remember the, the court case, but I know that was in Illinois as well. Uh, and so people don't really think about this, you know, the Midwest or uh, points north as having civil rights issues and struggles. But, you know, like Malcolm X said in the 60s, he said, uh, the South. Everywhere south of the Canadian border is the south. Yeah, that's right. He so, did. Uh, yeah, so anywhere in the United States. And so, you know, Karen, I wanted to ask you, you know, a little, 
you know, because we have people who are listening that may be interested in doing some of their own research or doing research mm-hmm. in their town or, you know, wondering how they can become a Dr. Carrie Pimblock, uh, <laughs> you know. And so, you know, what I would ask you, you know, how long just, you know, maybe kind of an estimate did it take you to conduct this research? And what methods did you use? I mean, you've, you've talked a little bit about that, but, you know, let's, you know, let's kind of, you know, maybe focus on that a little bit so our listeners can understand, particularly young people who may want to become history professors one day or researchers. Absolutely. I'd say really to strongly encourage people to conduct research in their communities, because the thing that we have as human beings, before I talk about specific methods, mm-hmm. but I really want to emphasize this, is, sure. is that I feel like we live in a very narcissistic moment mm-hmm. where people like to talk about themselves a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And I feel like my gift to the people that I write about is that I pay a great deal attention to their life yeah, that was did. often not paid in, in the moment. And I think that's what historians can do and, and what lay people can do who write historical books books, which Absolutely. is that we make that commitment to the people that we tell stories about to listen to their stories through the record, the historical record, to interview them, to take seriously their memory and their engagement, and to try to give a good, accurate account of what they did and how it made a real difference in the society uh, that we live in. And so for me, particularly as a, a scholar of social movements, you know, one of the big methods that I obviously use is, is to go back and speak with the activists themselves. Mm-hmm. And I really want to underscore this because we're at a time where, where many of these folks from the 60s are, are now elders um, and, and not all of them are still with us. The cost mm-hmm. of these movements that they took on people's bodies um, you know, is significant. That's, that's taken on their, their economic position within society. Many of the people that I've worked with uh, to interview from the Cairo United Front are either incarcerated, have mm. experienced incarceration. Uh, sure. Reverend Charles sure. Cohen today is incarcerated in Southern Illinois. Um, on charges related um, to his involvement with the United Front. Mm. Um, and so, so this for him is, is still very real. His family is living in Cairo and they continue the work of this organization. Um, you know, but at the same time, there's, there's other people who are in the book. Bobby Williams is another mm. who lives in St. Louis that I interviewed. Um, you know, a wonderful man who also faced uh, federal uh, gun charges and was Ooh. incarcerated for many years for his involvement in this movement. Um, so telling their stories and getting an accurate accurate sense of their involvement, speaking with people in your community that have been involved in civil rights and black power protests and documenting their stories while they are here with us so that they can see the testimony uh, Mm -hmm. that you're giving to their struggle um, is really important. I'd say in addition to that, a place like Cairo is a tricky place to do research, which is why I think there hadn't been a book on it yet. So in addition to interviewing people, I had to travel to a lot of archives um, in different places in the mm. United States. I went to New York, to the Schomburg. Um, okay. uh, I also went to... That's right. Wonderful archive uh, where I perform a lot of research um, and is a good space to get materials. Um, so they had papers there and I, I visited archives in Chicago and in St. Louis. Then I also looked at newspaper records. Mm-hmm. It's good to take a look at newspaper records. I also use census records, which you can access online mm-hmm. now. As many people mm-hmm. do when they do genealogy, you can use Ancestry.com. Um, and then I also or, or access organizational records for okay. the groups that I was studying. Sure, sure, sure. Um, some of this is online, but a lot of it is in archives um, mm-hmm. or it involved sitting down and talking with people at the end of the process and, and learning about their experience. Um, so I would, I would really strongly encourage young folks to, you know, begin researching people in their community, mm-hmm. um, you know, people that contributed to making the community they live in the place it is today. Um, and right. so 
documenting their stories and, and going out and using those tools that are available through the public library system uh, or through the internet now or through local archives and beginning to put together these and kind of accounts of um, how people in our communities who are often not represented mm. in the dominant narrative have actually made a real difference to improving the lives of subsequent generations. Sure, um, absolutely. I tell you, the biggest thing is they inspire you to continue your work, right? It, it encourages me to continue doing what I'm doing in my community. I believe that I have a responsibility to continue the struggle around questions of racial and economic justice mm-hmm. because people fought in each of these communities that we live to make things better for subsequent generations. Mm-hmm. And the least we can do is tell their stories and get involved. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Before they're gone. You know, Absolutely. And what, and what do they say? Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So if Absolutely. we don't if we don't tell these stories and, you know, and, and, and learn about them, some of the same challenges and struggles of the past can very easily come back. And young people may think that they're brand new, but the lessons have, have already been learned and the battles have already been fought. And we, mm-hmm. don't, we don't need to fight them again. And, you know, I, I was talking with someone the other day, and I'll mention it again here, Carrie, that pretty much every cell phone has a, a tape recorder or recording device on it, some type of digital recorder. So you don't have to buy expensive equipment. You know, talk to your older relatives or older people in your community. Uh, you know, record those stories before, you know, before they're gone. And, you know, you can be a junior historian or, or, you know, or whatever the case may be. And you can grow up and be a Dr. Carrie Pimblot one day, you know. And so it's, it's up to you. And, uh, and the people... And Cairo, Illinois, should be proud of you, Carrie. You did great by them and your story. And, you know, it took someone from another country to, you know, to represent them in, in, in such a way. So I'm sure if they're listening, you know, they should feel proud. And, you know, you've done good. Right. And you've done you've done a, uh, you, you, you did a great job. And, the book and is, I should say, oh, sure, people, go ahead. shout out to the people in Cairo, too, which is that the town gets. Um, you know, a lot of flack in how it's represented. I don't know if you recall recently, there was a, a, a situation where they had to consider blowing up a levee um, in uh, the Mississippi okay. to protect um, Cairo from flooding. And um, the Missouri uh, legislator uh, who was arguing for the levee to be blown um, said that they should flood Cairo instead because there really wasn't oh, anything worthwhile. Yeah, this was the argument was made that they should protect farmland as opposed to protecting Cairo because he saw nothing of value there. Talk about black lives don't matter for some people. So Cairo today is a predominantly black town and it has a certain reputation outside of itself in terms of how the media represents it. But I want to say when I have visited Cairo, the people that I have interviewed there for this project have been amongst some of the most wonderful people I've ever met. Um, and so part of this is, is a testimony to their continued struggle to represent their community um, in a way that has integrity um, and reflects accurately their long-standing struggle for justice and equity in Cairo. It's, a, it's an ongoing battle. Well said, Carrie. And, you know, Cairo, we haven't forgotten you. Carrie Pimble de- definitely has not forgotten you. And the book is Faith in Black Power, Religion, Race, and resistance in Cairo, Illinois. The publisher, of course, is University Press of Kentucky. And I'm here with my, my new soccer friend, <laughs> <laughs> Man United, Carrie Pimblot. She's a lecturer in American history at the University of Manchester in the UK. And so it's definitely a, a great pleasure to, to have her 
uh, speaking with us on our podcast on the New Books Network, the African American Studies channel from so far away. And I'm really enjoying our conversation so far. Um, any other thoughts or, you know, uh, you know, you kind of told us a lot. I was, I was kind of more thinking, you know, any last thoughts or, or comments you want to make, you know, final takeaways, you know, that, that you want to share before, you know, I give you a chance to talk about some other things that you're, that you're working on because you are in the UK and I don't want to take all your time up. <laughs> you've, got, <laughs> you've, got, you've got a partner that wants to spend some time with you. Um, but, you know, in, you know, any final thoughts there? Black Lives Matter movement. You know, uh, you know, where there's lots of struggles in terms of immigration and, and uh, human rights and things going on in the United States right now. You know, we, you know, we have some controversies a little bit with our, our president, and you know, people are kind of raising up and, and resisting, and they can draw inspiration from books like yours, Carrie. Yeah, I think the book really does. Uh, as I mentioned, I think it really demonstrates that people can organize successful movements, even when they do not seem to have the political opportunities to do so or the resources. Uh, one of the things that brought me about, which is actually why I'm starting to work on the new projects I'll describe to you in a second that I am, is that it really reinforced to me the incredible power of human beings. Um, and, and that sounds like a a funny thing to say, but sometimes in a society like the one we live in now um, and the conditions that people in America are living under right now, mm-hmm. um, the power of human beings can actually seem really small, you know, and young folks can feel like maybe there is not an opportunity to make a real difference in the world because the odds are stacked against them, I say, especially for working class people and people of color, you know, mm-hmm. um, what can I do to make a difference? Uh, you know, what can I possibly contribute to creating a more just society? Um, mm-hmm. But writing this book and telling the stories of people like Hattie Kendrick, who moved as a young woman from Mississippi to Cairo in the Great mm-hmm. Migration and as a woman in a period where very few women would have held positions of power, even within black organizations, she became the president of the NAACP and she was responsible for filing a legal suit to try and get equalization of salaries for black women in schools. Um, She also was responsible for fighting a struggle around school integration in Cairo and she won school integration in Cairo. She succeeded in, in that struggle. And then she mentored a whole generation of young, African-Americans in Cairo who become the leaders of a black power movement that resulted in the opening up of the political system so the black people in Cairo would take positions of political power and economic power. Um, You know, that was a person who made a real difference in a place where it felt like that was not possible. Um, Mm -hmm. So when I wrote her story, I looked for things in her as a human being that gave her that energy, that resilience Mm -hmm. to keep going. For the people in Cairo, I think a lot of it was was to do with their spiritual beliefs. I think that's why I focused on that in this story. That's not the case for everybody. You know, we have humanist brothers and sisters. You know, we have brothers and sisters who are atheists, you know, and I, I don't think that's everybody's story. But it's about finding what that thing within us as human beings that can motivate us to believe that we can make a real difference by organizing collectively with those around us. Um, Absolutely. And so I think the book has some good lessons about that. I'd encourage people to read it, uh, to restore some hope uh, that in this moment, I'm seeing so much organizing and Mm, so much potential for a real change. And so I'm very encouraged by that. And I'd encourage people read the book, see what the book might teach us in terms of organizing Mm. in our own communities. 
in the Trump and era. How, <laughs> uh, and and how this book can be used. You know, you heard Kerry talk about it there. You know, it's it's from a different period of time, but the lessons of history repeat again, and again, and again. And you can use this book. I I really truly believe as a primer and as an inspiration to help you in whatever struggles that that you face in your community and trying to affect change and make a difference. And the book is Faith and Power, Religion, Race, and Resistance in Cairo, not Cairo, (laughs) Cairo, Illinois. The author, Dr. Carrie Pimblot, she's an American history lecturer at the University of Manchester, and the book is published by University Press of Kentucky. And, you know, it's well after five, probably after six, over in the UK right now, so I don't want to hold you up. It's getting close to, to dinner time, but I did want you, Carrie, if you don't mind, maybe tell us about some current projects or some upcoming projects or some places that if our listeners are interested, they could find your work. Absolutely. So as I just mentioned, I'm really interested now in this question of um, how people uh, develop into activists. Mm-hmm. What is it that makes somebody kind of commit their whole life to the struggle for whether it's racial justice or immigrant mm-hmm. rights or, or you gender. know, gen- yeah, gender equality. What is it that makes these people, and I do believe that they are different than other people. There's people mm-hmm. that I've met in the course of my research who have okay. sacrificed everything to commit themselves to a principled life of social justice activism. Um, mm-hmm. So these people are really interesting to me. And so I'm finding people for my next project. Um, who tell us a really interesting story about how they became activists. And the people I'm interested in are people that sojourned um, outside of the United States during the Black Freedom Movement, people who lived in newly liberated uh, Ghana, uh, newly liberated China, um, and then also in, um, uh, in Nigeria. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm looking at people of color, people of African descent who moved from the United States and moved into these new decolonizing communities uh, in parts of the uh, global south. And I'm looking at how their experiences there turned them into uh, activists who would return to the United States and engage in struggles back in the United mm. States. So people like some of the obvious ones would be like Malcolm X who travels and mm. sojourns overseas. But other lesser known figures that I'm reading about right now are like Vicki Garvin, who was a, mm-hmm. a, a radical activist out of New York who lived in Nigeria, Ghana and China uh, during the mm-hmm. 1960s and 70s. Wow. Um, also, um, Maya Angelou, who mm-hmm. also lived mm-hmm. in uh, Ghana during this time period, um, and Alice Wyndham. And so okay. some of these people that uh, lived overseas and I guess because I'm doing this too, right? That I sojourned overseas for a period of my life. <laughs> and my experiences work, I'm a, a white woman from England, from South London. I worked in black communities in the US and got an education from African-American activists about the issues they faced in their communities and how to fight for more just society. I learned lessons from people living outside of my homeland. And so part of this for me is, is looking at the reverse story. African-American mm-hmm. activists living outside of their homeland, but in places- Going abroad. That's right. right. And learning lessons from African and Chinese activists uh, that they would then bring home to the United States and build successful movements there. That sounds great. And so is this going to be a book project or a journal article? Or you, or Not you sure yet. It's, it's so early because the book just came out, you know, so it's seeds of a new project. Right. I'm seeing how much I'm interested by the people I'm reading about, which right now is a lot. So maybe it will become a book. We'll see. And we'll see. Well, if it becomes a book, you're going to come back and talk. To of us, course. Right? Of course I will, James. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, sound, that sounds great to me. When we get offline, I have a suggestion for you for another person 
that you may be interested I in. I appreciate um, that. One, yeah, as well. Wow, that that sounds great. And I guess it's so early, you don't have a title yet. I guess we'll just have to look out and uh, and 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 see. Uh, but that's great. And so we're here with Carrie Plimpton. The first time I messed it up today. <laughs> Carrie. It's not an easy <laughs> think, one. It's not an easy yeah, one. It's definitely said earlier. It's definitely a UK name, right? That's right. Carrie Pimblot. You got Faith it. Faith and Black Power, Religion, Race, and Resistance in Cairo, Illinois, right? University of Press of Kentucky. And she is a lecturer. She spent a, a good decade here in Illinois, right? That's right. At the University of, of Illinois and in Wyoming. But now she is a lecturer in American history at the University of Manchester. And Carrie, thank you so much for taking time with us. I know that the the time is a little different there. And so, you know, I, I appreciate you, you know, maybe staying up a little, you know, a little later or, you know, kind of get into your evening hours there. But I think, you know, what we had to talk about was great. And I think the listeners will really get a lot from, you know, listening uh, to us today about your book, and hopefully they'll go out and purchase it, particularly those who are interested in black power or civil rights movements in small towns or, or areas. It doesn't have to be in the big city, and it doesn't have to be major names. Everyone can make a difference. That's right. And, you know, and, and I'm also hoping that maybe people who are interested in doing history and their, their own research can be inspired by your work as, as well and find a project that's passionate for them like this was for you and make an impact. Um, I do want to ask you before we go too. I know you got to go, but I want to get one more question <laughs> in if, if we if we could. Um, did you go back after the book was published um, to Cairo, or you know, do any talks there, or or, or yeah, the book is just published, so it's kind of yep. you know pretty new. So I have um, not had the opportunity to go to Cairo yet, but I had a wonderful opportunity to present on the book right as it was about to come out in Champaign-Urbana, which is only a few hours away. Okay. And um, and at that talk, uh, it was actually, it was remarkable. A person from my book who I had never met, um, his name's Gerald Montroy. Um, he was a priest who was uh, very active in the Black Power movement in Cairo and uh, gave great support to the United Front uh, in Cairo by opening up his church to allow them to use it for office spaces and meetings. He came to Champagne and I got to meet him for the first time. Awesome. And so that was a dream come true for me. I mean, it was absolutely wonderful, but also very scary because when you tell your story and you wonder if you got everything spot on, <laughs> <laughs> they're there to call you out if possible. But no, it was yeah. an absolutely wonderful experience. I am. I'm looking forward to sending a copy of this in the mail this week to Clydia Cohen, who is Charles Cohen's okay. uh, wife and who lives in right. Cairo, um, and hopefully to coming over this summer and speaking with people in Cairo about the book. Ah, outstanding. Uh, yeah, please let me know when you come by. Maybe we can divert you to Houston. Love that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe get you to uh, speak to some, some of us local folk in Houston as well. All right. Well, we're going to let Carrie go. Um, so she can have some dinner and enjoy her partner there a little bit. But Carrie, thank you so much for taking the time with us. It was a, a lot of fun. And the book is Faith in Black Power, Religion, Race, and Resistance in Cairo, Illinois. The author, Carrie Pimblot of the University of Manchester and the publisher, University Press of Kentucky. And if you don't mind, Carrie, maybe you could say goodbye to all the listeners out there on the New Books Network. Thank you very much, James. It's been a pleasure being on the show. And goodbye to everybody who's on uh, listening on their cars or on their way to work this morning. <laughs> uh, please do pick up a copy of the book and let me know what you think by emailing me at the University of Manchester. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Absolutely. And you can get her contact information um, right on our blog page. You can click through and you can see it. You can also purchase the book there on Amazon. 
And if you heard Carrie there, she would love to hear from you. Particularly people from Cairo. Uh, from Cairo right? All, I'm, I'm always sure excited to hear from people from Cairo. <laughs> I'd love to hear from some folks from there. Yeah, but but from you know anyone else as well who um, maybe shared in that freedom struggle from that time period, or who are just interested in learning more. Um, you know, Carrie is very motivated, as you can hear, and passionate about you know about this history, and she's a great historian. So again, thank you so much for your time, Carrie. And we're going to end it here. And thank you everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time on the African American Studies Channel of the New Books Network. This is your host, James Stansel. Peace and love. All right, we're back here, James Stansel, the New Books Network, the African American Studies Channel. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Carrie Pimblot of University of Manchester, the book Faith and Black Power, Religion, Race and Resistance in Cairo, Illinois, published by University Press of Kentucky. John Lewis on the cover. He's been in the news a lot right here uh, recently. President Trump said he hadn't done much, but he was on the cover. So I think he did something that, you know, a little bit back in the 60s. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed this interview and you drew some inspiration for it no matter what your struggles are because these folk in Cairo had some struggles but they overcame and they worked together and Kerry really really did a great job focusing on them and their struggles so I hope they're appreciative which I know that they are of the work that she did and Kerry if you're listening you did a great job and you should be very proud of your work in highlighting the black power struggle in Cairo Illinois so on that note I'll see you next time on the New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel. I'm your host, James Stansel. Peace and love.